Uh, do you want to turn to page 983 in the Green Bibles? If you're on your phone or tablet, uh, out of preference, then we're in Luke chapter 10, beginning to read from verse 25. Uh, or page 983 in the Green Bibles. Uh, you'll find copies on the tables either side. Just uh, thanks, Franz Elway, for, for sharing your experience on the weekend. It was a great time. Um, it, it's kind of our premier event. I think, uh, I didn't mean to sound too negative about the ski thing. I just, I know there are loads of skiers, but you're all doing, you're all going on your own ski trips, which is fine. Uh, you don't have to come on this one. Um, <laughs> genuinely, you, you, you don't. We, we took a punt and, and uh, that's not happening. And it's the same with sort of summer and the focus. I think uh, we'll, we'll be going to focus, but I know that some go to all sorts of other things going on. And that's fine. I love that you're, you know, you're getting plugged in in all sorts of different ways. But the weekend away, is that, uh, that's probably, if I could have a three-line width, uh, I can't, as you know, I can't force you to do anything. But if I could, I'd force you to come on the weekend away. Do what you like the rest of the time. Go where you want. Do. But the weekend away, that is, it's just 48 hours. It's so rich for us as a whole church. Um, next year, Amy or Ewing, I've worked out that if you put away £3.25 every week, uh, you'll be able to afford the full ticket next, next year. Although there is a bursary. But basically, what, how, how that works is it's kind of, that's, that's just under the price of a pint, isn't it? So what you do is every week you think, oh, I could murder a pint. And then you think, no, I won't have it. And the money I would have spent on the pint I've just thought about, I'll put aside. And every week it'll accumulate. And by this time next year, you'll be able to afford to hear Amy or Ewing all to yourself. Q&A with uh, one of the world's best apologists, uh, apologists on the Christian faith, Bible teaching and so on. So... That's my plug in early. Luke 10, 25, as we kick into this, uh, this new series on God's heart for those of us who are poor or deprived, disadvantaged in some way. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, 
go and do likewise. Father, please take this story and the spirit behind it and apply it to our hearts and minds this evening. As uh, Angus and, and Lydia have prayed earlier on this evening, we, we brave ourselves to be transformed by your heart of love for every single person that you've made in your image. So affect that transformation in us in these next few weeks. Speak to us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, just to give you a little sort of heads up on the, on the series, we, I, I'm, what I want to do this evening is to uh, attempt to exegete this passage, to uh, attempt an understanding of um, what Jesus is saying to the lawyer in this text, but what he's saying to us by his spirit. Um, I want then to move on to look at a, a definition and a measurement, how we might measure poverty. So what do we understand by poverty? What, what's the definition and how might we measure it in order that we can begin to appreciate how we might play our part in tackling it? Uh, and I, I want to sort of finish by seeing what that might look like for us as, as a church um, over and over alongside um, government policy and local authorities and so on who are all doing their best to address the issue of poverty in our nation today and indeed our world uh, and that will lead into so next week Lydia is speaking I want to we're going to sort of just explore further the different types of poverty or disadvantage that many of us experience. Um, we've got Francesca Dalton, our church warden, she's going to be speaking, uh, looking at some of the blind spots. What are some of the, the sort of um, unconscious bias that we bring to, to life just by dint of our education, our upbringing, um, the things we've experienced inevitably sort of blinker us. So what, what are the ways in which we can remove the blinkers to see how God sees uh, our culture, society around us? And then we'll explore what the Old Testament has to say about God and the poor, justice, mercy. How the New Testament church, another uh, Sunday, we'll look at how the New Testament church uh, wrestled with and um, attempted to tackle issues of um, injustice or imbalance or disadvantage amongst their number and their local community. Uh, and hopefully that will pave the way for how we as a church can respond 21st century in this city, in our community. So God's heart for the poor is uh, where we're going for the next few weeks. And here we are with this little incident here. I'm, I'm guessing for some of us, it's um, a fairly familiar story that Jesus tells, framed by this expert in the law. Well, I guess he's a bright guy. He knows the law. And he stands up to test Jesus' teacher. Verse 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? How do you read it, Jesus says. And uh, the expert of the law, he gives, I mean, it's a pretty, pretty fair synopsis of, of all of this. He basically sums it up like this. Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's not bad, is it? 
you ask to sum up the whole of Torah, <laughs> that's a pretty good answer. And sure enough, look at this, he gets, he gets a sort of big tick from Jesus. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. That, that's not bad, is it? Sort of tough question. Jesus pushes it back. You give an answer, you've answered correctly. All going well. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. Kind of prove himself, I guess. Win the point. So he asked Jesus a second question. Who is my neighbor? Now there's a little bit of context to, to behind that question. Because he's an expert in the law. And Jewish law had kind of evolved over the centuries. By Jewish, I don't mean the political state that we, we think of maybe today. I'm talking about God's people, the seed of Abraham. Uh, the people God has called to himself to be a light to the Gentiles, to the surrounding nations. And uh, the law has evolved from Moses and the commandments. And this expert in the law will know all the, the, the details, every dot and every tittle. Is that the word? Anyway. Every last bit of the law. And all the nuance, all the implications, all the applications. So when he asks, and who is my neighbor? What he's really saying is, because he knows that as a good God-fearing Jew, his neighbor is oh, our fellow Jews. He has an obligation in law to look after the, the widows and the fatherless and the orphans, as well as his, his neighbors. And community folk, other Jews. He knows by inference, almost by definition, that he has no obligation to look out for Gentiles who are not God's people and therefore not his neighbor. And he certainly has no obligation to look out for Samaritans who are, in a sense, the lowest of the low because they're the ones, they're the Jews who've compromised in history. They're, they're the kind of turncoats, the traitors, if you like. So who is my neighbor? He's really asking Jesus, how far do my obligations extend? What can I get away with not doing, not being, as an upright, God-fearing, respectable Jew? And Jesus starts telling this story, which again would have been set in familiar themes. It's a bit like saying, you know, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was going to the, the rough part of town, whatever you want to hold as the equivalent of that, where there's often knife crime or street fights or pub brawls or whatever. Risky place. You don't go there on your own at dark. And here's a man going down there. And he falls into the hands of robbers. Jesus' audience, no surprise. And they beat him up, leave him half dead. Verse 31, this is kind of... Um, rattles with us, doesn't it? A, a priest walking on the other side, a Levite walking on the other side, ignoring the obvious needs of this guy. I mean, oh yeah, terrible, awful. Jesus' audience probably didn't bat too much of an eyelid, to be honest. See, again, it, it, remember the context, it's all about the law and knowing the law. So a priest walking down and he sees a man who's so beaten up and disfigured, he's described as half dead in the story. So is this man a Jew or not? Am I obliged to help him or not? And if he's half dead, like, what if I go to tend his wounds and he dies? Me, a priest, touching a dead body makes me ceremonially unclean. 
I don't want to do that. So Jesus' hearers would have understood why the priest walks on by. So to the Levites, descended from the clan of Levi, house of Levi, he would have known all the ceremonial laws around touching, uh, well, certainly a Gentile, because we're not sure, is he a Jew or not? Uh, and certainly one that is maybe dead, passes by on the other side. Jesus' hearers, mm, fine. I, you, you're rattling out the story, Jesus. I wonder where it's going. Then a Samaritan. Ah. Kajunk. This is like mood change. Now, now where's the story going? A Samaritan. We hate them. A Samaritan comes and has pity on him and tends to his wounds and puts him on his donkey and spends wine and vinegar and all that he has and gives money to the innkeeper and promises to reimburse whatever expense is incurred in order that this man is healed. And then this fantastic question of Jesus, verse 36. Do you notice he doesn't, he doesn't ask, who did the Samaritan think was the neighbor? Because a Jewish audience says, who cares? I don't care what Samaritans think. They're the lowest, they're scum. So Jesus doesn't frame the question that way. Jesus says, which of these three was a neighbor to this man? And the lawyer is forced to say, no, he doesn't name the Samaritan, just the one who had mercy on him. Jesus is effectively saying to his audience and to this lawyer that the heart of the gospel is this. The good news that I've come to, to teach and to, to flesh out is this. That God is not just the God of the Jews. He's not just the God of Israel. God is the God of the whole world. So the question is to you Jews, the you expert of the law are you prepared to receive a Samaritan as your neighbor will you humble yourself to receive someone you don't like someone you have demonized someone you have categorized and put into a box and shoved over there will you will you be willing to receive them as a neighbor, to allow them to help you. Because the implication is, from the story, if not, you're half dead on a road, and I don't know how much longer you've got to live. You want to taste the banquet of heaven? Well, in your half-dead state, salvation for you comes in the form of a Samaritan. Are you willing to receive it? Here's the challenge for them and for us. Do we use our God-given revelation of his extraordinary love, mercy, kindness, grace, 
generosity. Do we use all of that only for those that we deem are our neighbors? Only for those who we suspect will love us in return? Do we simply love those who love us in order that we might be justified? Jesus told another story exactly to that point. When you throw a dinner party, he said, don't just invite those who will invite you back. No, when you invite a dinner party, invite those who you'd never think of inviting, who would never be able to invite you back. And that way you'll see the kingdom of heaven. Kind of making the same point here. Will we allow ourselves to be challenged by the revelation of God's grace and mercy and kindness to us that we will take it to every single person regardless of their color or creed or code or conduct? Indiscriminate love, indiscriminate grace and generosity like the Samaritan in the story. The question is not who is my neighbor? The question is, am I being one? Am I being a neighbor to everyone I meet in need, to everyone I see in need? Am I being a neighbor in the way that the Samaritan was to this half-dead Jew? So this series, not the best title, I, I can't really think of a better working title, though I've taken it straight from Galatians 2, verse 10, where Paul, in uh, setting up the church for the Gentiles in Galatia, alongside Peter, who's uh, growing the church in Rome, uh, uh, amongst the, the, the kind of converted Jews, so Peter to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles, growing this, this church movement planting these churches with Jew and Gentile, all sorts of difficulties, all sorts of things to work out. And yet, what Paul says to the Galatians is, undergirding all of that, we will not forget the poor. We, we promise always we will remember the poor. Galatians 2 verse 10. Absolute priority for the people of Jesus Christ as he went to the poor. So we, his church, will deliberately go to the poor. That is how we will be the neighbor. To those of us who are in any way disadvantaged, deprived, am I being a good neighbor? That, I, I guess, is the, the question that undergirds these next few weeks. Am I being a good neighbor in the way that the Samaritan was to the half-dead Jew, to anyone I encounter, anything that I become aware of? So let's attempt a definition of poverty, or at least an understanding of poverty, which is it's going to be a little bit like nailing jelly to the wall, because um, there are all sorts of metrics, all sorts of understandings, all sorts of stances, uh, which will be nuanced by the way in which, again, we, we've been brought up. It will be nuanced by our political persuasion. It will be nuanced by all sorts of uh, our awareness of what's going on in the world, in this nation. I'm very aware that I, I've, I've been doing quite a lot of research in the last few weeks for this. And I, the more I discover, the more I discover I don't know or didn't know. Uh, at, at times, I've, my head has been sort of swimming with how to, to um, order the, the, the sort of information that swims across uh, the page. Um, 
or the website or whatever it is. There's absolutely no doubt that there is there's extreme poverty in our world. Uh, this book, which uh, I found incredibly helpful, Ellie Hughes recommended it to us when she came and spoke at um, Toolkit uh, at the end of last year. A Church for the Poor, transforming the, ch- transforming the Church to Reach the Poor in Britain Today. Martin Charlesworth and Natalie Williams. Um, and they uh, offer this definition of, if you like, absolute poverty. It's the lack of the most essential basic needs for pure survival. In other words, food, water, shelter. And the absence of one or more of those things, if that is leading to um, severely inhibiting life, maybe even causing your death, then you are said to be in absolute poverty. And there's no doubt, again, as you look around the world today, there are people dying today for lack of food, water, adequate shelter. There's no doubt there's absolute poverty in the world today. And if we think about our nation, we're one of the, in relative terms, and I'm generalizing, but in relative terms, we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Uh, Again, I'm generalizing, I'll I'll, I'll tease this out a little bit in a a few minutes. But we're, we're unbelievably wealthy. I came across this stat the other day, which apparently Manchester City Football Club have spent more on their first team defence than 52 nations in the world have spent on their national defence. In one sense, we are extraordinarily wealthy. And yet, uh, and uh, Charlesworth and Williams warn us not to fall into a kind of false dichotomy of thinking, therefore, we should spend all our time and energy resources on tackling absolute poverty worldwide. Because there are clearly signs of relative poverty within our nation, within this city, and I would argue within our local community. When you look beyond leafy Parsons Green with its champagne bars and cafes full of yummy mummies, a stone's throw in any direction here. I've lived here 12 years, coming up 13 years now. And I've seen one or two things behind the scenes that can only be described as, as utter deprivation and people living in genuine, genuine poverty. Cheek by jowl with people who own their own three or four million pound houses. It's in our local community, as our city, as our nation, relative poverty. And, and it's become, I think, intensified and exacerbated over the last 10 years in all of our lifetime. Summer and autumn of 2008, uh, the credit crunch. Massive overextension of the credit facilities. Our banks severely overheated, pretty much melted down. Uh, government political expediency at the last minute more or less saved the day, but the, the consequences are ongoing. We're feeling them today, led pretty quickly to what we understand as the financial crisis uh, and to recession and the sort of boom years in relative terms that we had enjoyed as a country for some time uh, came to a fairly abrupt end. Governments in huge debt, so uh, business starved of loan capital, job losses uh, rapidly increasing, government budgets cut if you work 
in uh, the, the social services, <coughs> um, you will know. If you work in the NHS, I mean, you've just been watching the news in the last two or three weeks, you've seen just the features around the, the, the plight of the NHS. But I, I work with the local police. Uh, they are struggling massively with, with the, the, imp the, the implication of the, the, the successive cut in funding that they've experienced. So we talk these days of an age of austerity. If I'd, if I'd mentioned that phrase 10, 15 years ago, if I said, oh, you know, the age of austerity, you'd have assumed that I was going to give you a history lesson about sort of 100 years ago or sort of post-war Britain. But now we all just accept we, this, we are in austerity. Theresa May, 2016, used the acronym JAMS, J-A-M. And again, you know, if I'd talked about jam in a church context, you'd have thought the vicar's wife was up to sort of making something in the kitchen. But anyone, do you know what a jam, jams are? Anyone? Just about managing. You, actually, just help me out. Who knew that jams was just about managing? Don't be modest. Show off your knowledge. Okay. Oh, thought there'd be a few more. Well, there we are. Now you know. Uh, so our own prime minister recognized that there are more and more people who could be defined or described as just about managing to get through the day, the week, the month. You, you know, because Jason is our champion for the local food bank, but the demand on the resources of our local food bank, people who are not able to manage, there's just not enough uh, money for the month. Uh, kids, hungry mouths to feed, and the, the demand is soaring. Uh, would that we could just about keep up with the supply. Relative poverty. And within that, the gap between rich and poor appears. And again, I just want to be sort of relatively cautious because for every assertion you make in this whole realm, there are people who would counter-assert. But it would appear, the evidence is beginning to suggest that the gap between the rich and the poor is, is widening, it's increasing. The Independent in March 2015 reported that in the decade up to 2015, from 2005 to 2015, the rich had got richer by 64% and the poor had got poorer by 57%. I haven't got the, uh, that's a secondary sort of reading of that article, so I haven't got, I don't know how they measured that. So I'll treat that with a fair degree of caution. But nevertheless, there are a, a number of commentators who would agree to the same thing. Just, just at the end of last year, the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, December 2017, uh, reported that almost 400,000 more children and 300,000 more pensioners are now living in poverty than in 2012-2013, according to the latest figures. The report from the Joseph Roundtree Foundation the report revealed that since 2003, people in the poorest fifth of the population have experienced a higher rate of inflation than the rest of the country in every year except 2010. Food and energy bills take up a larger share of incomes, leaving people on low incomes with little room for manoeuvre when prices rise. The report also found that nearly a quarter of adults in the poorest fifth of the population experience depression or anxiety. So absolute poverty in our world today. And if we would be hard-pressed to say that there are people actually dying for lack of food and water and shelter in this country, it cannot be denied that there is relative poverty in our country, in our city, 
in our local communities. So absolute poverty, relative poverty. But how do we measure them? How do we gain an understanding of what we mean by relative poverty, such that we can recognize and begin, hopefully, to provide something of an answer? Well, again, this is where it, it can get tricky. The government, um, to keep on the safe side, if you like, they will, they will restrict their definition of poverty to economic terms. And they'll define poverty relative to earnings. So the official government line uh, to define um, whether you are in a state of poverty or not is if your earnings are 60% less than the median national income. So if you earn 60% less than the median national income, you're said to be in a state of poverty. But, but, but earnings and income are only one strand in a, in a great array of factors that we might use to discern whether someone is deprived or disadvantaged uh, or poor in some way. And, uh, Charlesworth and Williams point to the Economic and Social Research Council that has done a tremendous amount of work in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, some seismic research that they carry out every nine years or so. They've won in 1983, 1990, 1999, and the latest one was in 2012. Huge survey of a, a, a cross sample of the, of the population to try and get... A, uh, poverty, not through simply economic terms, but through uh, terms of deprivation or an understanding of deprivation, slightly more reliable as a measure than simply levels of income. And as a result of that, Charlesworth and Williams come up with this definition for relative poverty. So absolute poverty is you, you, you haven't got the basics to live. You will die without food, shelter, water, etc. But relative poverty is this, the inability to access basic necessities to live viably in the UK or to play a normal part in society through whole indices of deprivation. It would, it would amount to the inability to access basic necessities to live viably in the UK or play a normal part in society. Could you cope without having a toothbrush or a hairdryer? What about a waterproof coat or some stout or sturdy shoes? What about living in a house that is overcrowded? Could you share a room? I'm mean, not just for a weekend away, I mean permanently, with maybe two or three others? in a damp house. Imagine you're a nine-year-old trying to do your homework and there's just all sorts going on in the one crowded room, the only room that you can afford to heat and then only sporadically. How, how much of a chance have you got to excel in your schoolwork compared to someone else who has their own bedroom, nice centrally heated computer and everything else to help you with all the answers? ranges of, of deprivation and uh, Charlesworth and Williams they list quite a few let me just read out a few I didn't do this this morning but they're quite interesting some of them two meals a day these are the, the sort of considered necessities as the basis for the assessment of 
relative poverty. The ability to visit friends or family in hospital or other institutions. The ability to replace or repair broken electrical goods. Fresh fruit and vegetables every day. Celebrations on special occasions. A warm waterproof coat, no, I mentioned that one. Uh, curtains or window blinds. Interesting. I'll just pull the curtains, take it for granted, don't we? And if we didn't have curtains, we think, oh, I've, I've got to get some curtains up. What if, what if you just couldn't? Hobby or leisure activity. I wonder how many of us are members of gyms or some similar club. We just kind of take that for granted. Or at least I speak for myself, I do. Uh, tables and chairs at which all the family can eat. Regular savings of at least £20 per month for future financial challenges. And the list goes on. Uh, and the Economic and Social Research Council conclude that if you, if you fall below three or more of those factors, then you can be said to be deprived in some way and therefore in relative, and it's all relative, but in relative poverty. So what? what why, should, why should we address this as individuals, as, as a church? Really interesting, when we um, made our plans for the Living Space Project, you can see on the board at the back uh, what we're planning to do, hopefully getting permission by the middle, end of this year. Um, so that, yeah, we're hoping to complete this work, hopefully by the middle of next year, all being well. But when we put this out to the local community and, and basically said, look, th this is this extraordinary footprint in the middle of a densely populated uh, part of town. There's, there's nowhere else this size, uh, you know, for a mile, mile and a half around that, is, that the, the local community could use. And it's our heart and our vision to open this place up. It, the building looks shut. We want to open it up uh, so that the community know they can use it for kids groups or for... Uh, senior citizens to, to come and you know, just have a free tea on a weekday afternoon. Or that we might extend the work of the night shelter or have uh, a debt advice bureau set up. I mean, all sorts of ways in which we could be a blessing to the community. And I was talking to one of our neighbours who I, I don't think has a Christian faith and I've certainly not seen them here um, in, in the context of worship. And um, she was sort of you know, quizzical. And she basically said, why? Why do you need to do that? I don't understand. Why can't you? Know, she, if, if she didn't say this, but in effect she was saying, why can't you just be a church? Which, in, by her definition, is why can't you just be boring and shut and quiet and nothing going on? That's what church is. You know, she's watching the Vicar of Dibley. She's up to date and up to speed. And I tried to explain. And she said, well, isn't that what we pay our council tax for? One sense, good point, and yeah, we do pay our council tax in order that through government channels and government sources we can tackle poverty and deprivation as they see it. But what I want to come on to argue is that there's, there's a much broader spectrum, there's a much broader way of seeing people in need. And we want to play our part alongside the government, alongside taxpayers' money, to see every single human being flourish. Because according to this definition of relative poverty, the inability to access basic necessities to live viably in the UK or to play a normal part in society, according to Charlesworth and Williams, 
a third of all households in this country fall under that category, or fall into um, relative poverty. In other words, three or more of those deprivations they experience on an, on an ongoing basis. That poverty is on the increase. And that the gap between rich and poor is, is increasing. Oxfam uh, last year quoted as saying that the United Kingdom was one of the most unequal countries in the world. It's staggering wealth, cheek by jowl with extraordinary poverty and deprivation. A recent study on child poverty discovered that some of the poorest children live in our richest cities. Rich and poor. And the gap is widening. We should be, as Christians, we should be concerned about that. Stirred to action about that. A third of the households in relative poverty. The gap widening. And, and attitudes towards poverty and those of us who experience poverty hardening. Maybe not helped by um, programs like um, Benefit Streets and Kids on Benefit, uh, a sort of you know, fly-on-the-wall documentary of, of uh, life in some of these places and areas. People like us in need. Attitudes hardening. Austerity bites. Uh, preoccupation with Brexit. And I, I mean, I'm, I don't want to get, it's, it's my job not to get too political in this, but it's, it's hard not to argue that, that there's a kind of polarization of view and viewpoint. And we as a church, I think, are called to navigate that for the sake of all of God's people. Let me finish with um, what I hope we'll take up in the next few weeks uh, as, we, as we look to sort of unpack a little bit this, this, you know, the, the term poverty. What does it actually look like? How might we as Christians uniquely perhaps address some of the issues of relative poverty that we see around us? And I'll just take you back to the, the original answer of the lawyer. Very striking. Uh, in this, he strikes up the dialogue, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? How do you read it? He answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus said, do this and you will live. Full stop. Supposing there wasn't the but, supposing he wasn't trying to make a point, we just left it there. Okay, we wouldn't have had the amazing story of the Good Samaritan, but what a great answer. What a great answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. I want to argue that, that that would go quite some way to tackle all types of poverty that we encounter in the world today. Love the Lord your God with all your heart to tackle relational poverty. You know, the commentators talk about social cohesion or the, or the breakdown of community, of, of rabid individualism. Look after number one. Uh, it, the, we've ruptured our relationship with God. We're rupturing our relationship with one another. And we were made to be relational. We're made by the relational God to be in relationship with him and with one another. 
relational poverty is, is, is real, very hard to measure, won't be recognized on government statistics. But we, don't we? We understand what we mean by that. Relational poverty is what uh, we as Christians can be called to tackle. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I might add soul or spirit. Love the Lord your God with your spirit. You're sitting here because I'm making the charitable assumption you've been privileged enough to come into a living knowledge and saving knowledge of the love of God through Jesus Christ. Someone introduced you. It could be a parent, mate at school, colleague at work. I don't know who it was, but, but someone encouraged you to explore the claims of Jesus Christ for yourself, which you did. And whatever your journey was and is, here you are now. Knowing that, I hope you know, that you are privileged to have an ongoing, loving, living relationship with the creator of the universe, such that he invites us to call him Father. We can call the God of the whole universe Father. Jesus says in John's Gospel that he doesn't call us servants, he calls us friends. How rich are we? What wealth for the soul. So what about all those who don't know God as Father, and don't know God at all? Just think this Jesus story is a myth or fairy tale or worse. How deprived are they? I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm speaking on objective sense, I don't mean the pejorative there. We, we have something to give, to offer. Love the Lord your God with all your soul is to take what we know of God out to share with others. That's why we engage in mission. That's why we, we train ourselves in evangelism so that we might be good at enriching others and countering soul poverty that we see all around us. People chasing after goods and material stuff and thinking that that is God. And it only disappoints the, the, the smashing time and time again, the smashing of hope in our souls. We can't bear that as human beings, to be disappointed because we were appointed to be in relationship with God. So when we put our trust in other gods, we become disappointed. We can't live with that. We become poor. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. We, we, we can provide Something of an answer, We're not our, we ourselves, we can point to the answer, to God himself. To love the Lord your God with all your strength. But that's the economic bit, enough food on the table, clothes on my body, warmth, housing, shelter, so that I, I can live well. We can play our part and be generous with the resources we have as we share them out. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Again, Aspirational poverty, as, uh, as Charlesworth and Williams put it, is rife amongst us. Children born into third, fourth, fifth generation families where there's never been a wage earner. Just growing with, with no hope that they themselves might be able to hold down a job. No hope that they'll have the kind of education that would enable them to succeed at an interview. Hopelessness just bred endemically into household after household. Aspirational poverty. 
nothing will change. They won't do anything for me. We've, we've got to confront that. Love the Lord your God with all your mind so that as we come to Jesus, Romans 12, 1 and 2, as an act of worship, we won't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we might test and approve what his good, pleasing and perfect will is. That's not just for us. That's by derivation for everyone. Aspirational poverty, loving the Lord your God with all your mind. And as we love him with our heart and soul and strength and mind, we will want to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we will find ourselves being the very agents, the vehicles that bring transformation and God's love into a hungry, hurting world. God's heart for the poor.